Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In 1847, two years after the publication of Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte wrote to her friend W.S. Williams. In her letter, she said the following about the portrayal of Bertha Mason in Jane Eyre. It is true that profound pity ought to be the only sentiment elicited by the view of such degradation. And equally true is it that I have not sufficiently dwelt on that feeling. I have erred in making horror too predominant. Jean Rhys agreed with Bronte's self-criticism. Rhys was a white Creole writer who mostly wrote in the 1920s and 30s, but spent about two decades towards the end of her life writing Wide Sargasso Sea. Wide Sargasso Sea is a prequel of Jane Eyre, telling the story of Bertha and how she ended up in that attic at Thornfield Hall. Reese said she wanted to give Bertha a voice. She said, quote, The Creole in Charlotte Bronte's novel is a lay figure, repulsive, which does not matter, and not once alive, which does. She's necessary to the plot, but always she shrieks, howls, laughs horribly, attacks all, and sundry, off stage. For me, and for you, I hope, she must be right on stage. When I was first told about this widely beloved and respectful novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, I couldn't understand what words people were saying. For those having the same problem, the words are wide, like width, and then Sargasso Sea. The Sargasso Sea, for which the novel is in part named, is part of the North Atlantic Ocean. It is bounded not by land, but by four currents, all going in different directions. It is an incredibly dangerous part of the ocean for ships, and it is full of brown seaweed called sargassum, which boats can get stuck in. It is also the sea that separates Jamaica from England. Now the plot. I keep saying Bertha, but in Wide Sargasso Sea, her name isn't Bertha. This woman's name is Antoinette, at least at the beginning of the novel. Part one is a young Antoinette living in a post-emancipation Jamaica with her mother, her baby brother, and the servants who were formerly enslaved and have stuck around. It's clear that her family had formerly made their money from plantations and slavery, but are now impoverished and completely out of place. 
Another character important to highlight is Christophine. Christophine, one of the people who serves in the house, was a wedding present to Antoinette's mother and acts as Antoinette's nurse and surrogate mother. This life in Jamaica is a life full of trauma. One day, the white man who lives next door shoots his dog and swims out to sea to his death. Horses get poisoned, Antoinette's clothes get stolen, and the house is literally falling down around this family. And then one day, after her mother has gotten remarried to a man named Mr. Mason, nearby blacks begin to riot, and they burn the house down with Antoinette's family still in it. The family mostly escapes, but the house burns right up, including the parrot who cannot fly away from the flames because Mr. Mason clipped its wings. Yes, houses built on slavery get burnt to the ground and strong bird imagery. It sounds familiar. Antoinette's baby brother dies from injuries from the fire, and her mother begins to go mad with grief. Antoinette gets sent away to school at a convent and feels safe within its walls. But one day, her stepfather comes and tells her it is time to get married. In part two, Antoinette tells her stepbrother Richard that she does not want to marry Mr. Rochester, who is technically unnamed in the novel. But Rochester comes to her and tells her how much he loves her and wants to marry her. He tells Antoinette that he loves her while telling us that he is marrying her for her money and that he doesn't even know her, let alone love her. He's been in Jamaica four weeks and had a fever for three of them. Rochester has been paid 30,000 pounds to marry Antoinette, and he now has complete power and control over her. They go to honeymoon in a beautiful house just outside of a town called Massacre. And Rochester, at first, likes the house and his wife well enough, and certainly likes the sex and the money, not to mention spending all day swimming in a beautiful location. But things start to fall apart for Rochester and Antoinette when Rochester gets a letter saying that Antoinette is a liar who will go mad, and that she comes from mad women and liars. It echoes the line in Jane Eyre where Rochester calls Bertha, quote, the true daughter of an infamous mother. Antoinette, distraught over the abrupt change in Rochester's behavior, goes to Christophine and asks Christophine to do obeya, a kind of magic, to make Rochester love her again. Christophine warns Antoinette that obeya love potions don't work on white people, but Antoinette persists. Christophine turns out to be right. The love potion only inspires more hatred and doubt in Rochester. He sleeps with the servant just on the other side of the screen from his wife. And this is the beginning of Antoinette's unraveling. This is when Rochester starts calling Antoinette Bertha, and things rapidly deteriorate from there. Rochester can see hate in the eye of his wife. She retreats into herself, which makes him treat her like she's crazier. She tells Rochester more stories about watching her mother get drugged and assaulted, about how she saw rats watching her sleep as a child, about her deep fear, and Rochester finds her darkness repulsive. Christophine goes to Rochester and offers to take care of Antoinette, but Rochester refuses to give any money for her care. 
So he draws a picture of a woman looking out of an attic window and takes Antoinette with him to England. Part three is more recognizable to us Jane Eyre readers. We are in the attic. Antoinette doesn't understand where she is. Is she on a boat to England? She's living with a woman named Grace Poole, who is often drunk. Her brother, Richard Mason, comes to visit her and doesn't recognize her, which she finds horrifying. She dreams of escaping and setting the house on fire. And she does it and jumps to her death. The end. In the years preceding the publication of Wide Sargasso Sea, Jean Reese was largely forgotten. In fact, BBC, on the air, mentioned that she was dead and she had to call in and correct them. In the years following the publication of Wide Sargasso Sea, the New York Times Book Review called Reese, quote, the best living English novelist, to which she felt, I am not English, I am a white Creole. What you are about to hear is a conversation between me and professor of English, Erica Johnson. Erica just co-edited a book called Wide Sargasso Sea at 50, and she also co-edited Jean Rhys, 21st Century Perspectives. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Hot and Bothered. Hi, Erica. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Well, hi. It's really nice to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So first, I would just love if you could tell us a little bit about our author, Jean Rhys. Who was she and why do you think she was motivated to write this book centering Bertha? Jean Rhys uh, was born in Dominica in the Caribbean, and um, she was born in 1890 and came to England as a 17-year-old and kind of made her way around England as a chorus girl. She wrote here and there. She didn't publish until the 20s and 30s initially. And she's known as a great modernist for her work during the 20s and 30s. But the novel that we're going to be discussing, Wide Sargasso Sea, she published in 1966 after having basically spent 27-odd years writing it. There was a long break in her career. She published her fourth of her first four novels in 1939, and then Wide Sargasso Sea in 1966 with a few short stories in between. But, you know, even though she was working on it for those 27 years, she had been thinking about it since she was a teenager because she read Jane Eyre as a teenager and it rankled her from the very beginning the way the Jamaican Creole woman, Bertha, was treated in Jane Eyre. What does it mean to be a great modernist? Well, modernism uh, is is a period, you know, usually thought of as the first couple of decades, three decades of the 20th century, where writers were making a break with Victorian Edwardian narrative practices and structures, and there was a lot of experimentation. So modernist writing is exciting to me because it is so experimental. It, they were cracking open new narrative possibilities. They were telling new stories infusing a great deal of poetry into narrative. And Reese's mastery of that experimentalism, she found a very, very unique voice in all of that. And her work is, it challenges any kind of narrative traditions that came before. 
So what would it have meant to be raised in Dominica as a white Creole woman in 1890? What was her life like? What was Dominica like at the time? She has fond and very troubling and troubled memories of it. Um, After she left Dominica as a teenager, she only went back one other time. And it was a very disappointing return for her. In many ways, she claimed Dominica in the sense that that's where her childhood memories were. And she loved the place. I mean, the place is truly a character in Wide Sargasso Sea. But she knew she didn't belong there. She knew that. She knew that she was a descendant of slave owners in a former slave society. She knew that her family had only an ugly history there. And and she even says this in some of her letters when she was writing Wide Sargasso Sea, that there's a simmering violence in the landscape that the, the history of Dominica, it infused the landscape with that human violence But she yearned for the warmth and the color and everything. She she saw England as a loss. Hmm. Did she experience any of the kind of trauma that Antoinette in the novel does? The house burning and having to reckon on an interpersonal level with legacy? Or is this just sort of like in the memory, the cultural memory of how and where she grew up? Uh, certainly cultural memory. It's certainly in the cultural memory. When scholars talk about trauma in Reese, they tend to focus on sexual trauma because when she was very young, there was an older man who, it seems quite clear, had sexual relations with her and her mother kind of looked the other way. Um, Tricia Moran, Patricia Moran has written about how Reese writes in an aesthetic of trauma. And she, too, traces it back to that sexual trauma. But I think that, you know, the larger racial trauma is very much impressed upon her. And by racial trauma, I'm referring again to the traumatic institution of slavery and the violence inherent in it. That's part of her cultural memory. Yeah. What does it mean, like, as we read White Sargasso Sea, how would you say that there's a trauma aesthetic? How would you define that or point us to it in the novel? Uh, Trauma aesthetic has to do with a kind of fragmented narrative structure, fragmented text, and the nonlinearity of the memory within the text. Trauma is not Mm -hmm. something that can be voluntarily recalled. It is something Mm -hmm. that lives in the subconscious and then in almost imperceptible ways governs action, relationship, behaviors, that sort of thing. Um, White Sargasso Sea is extremely fragmented in its structure. I mean, it's written in three different parts. It's written from different consciousnesses. And then... It recounts manifold tensions (laughs) at every level. I had never thought about trauma aesthetic and what, you know, what that would mean as far as modernism and sort of trying to infuse that violence into their novels. But as someone who's read most of Wolf, that really tracks for me in my understanding Mm -hmm. of modernism. 
Yeah, and actually this book that I just mentioned by Patricia Moran is about the trauma aesthetic in Reese and Wolf together. So Oh, interesting. Yeah. You would love that book maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's the same thing, right, of this early sexual trauma and mm-hmm. then just like the trauma of cultural inheritance and of for Wolf being alive during World War One in England, right? Yeah. And trying to capture that through fragmentation. Yeah, exactly. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com But, okay, so Wide Sargasso Sea is in part interesting to me because it is an instinct that I love of, like, who was Bertha? Let's understand Bertha. And a white Creole writer trying to understand Bertha. And yet there are ways in which it reifies the same problems that Jane Eyre has, right? It is still a white woman's perspective about something that is like mostly not a white English woman's experience. And so I'm wondering how you make sense of Jean Reese in terms of like, is she a Caribbean writer? Is she a British writer? Are these identities important for why she either had the right or not to write this book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, early in her career, she was claimed as a British writer, which she did not identify with at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. she has so many comments about the Anglo-Saxons and and (laughs) what she dislikes about Anglo-Saxons, this and that. And when she came to England, she would say, you know, oh, look at all these white people looking like woodlice everywhere. I mean, she, she really did not like England. She did not like the English. The way that she maps onto these different literary identities is extremely complicated, extremely complex. But, you know, even the first page, the first sentences of Wide Sargasso Sea, they say when trouble comes, close ranks. And so the white people did. We were not among them. So she positions herself with relationship to her whiteness throughout Mm -hmm. Wide Sargasso Sea. And for that matter, in a lot of her work, one thing she does is she doesn't assume there's anything universal about white. She sees whiteness. She sees it. She knows whiteness to be a historical phenomenon and and one that she addresses. Yeah. Which for somebody writing from her period was pretty unusual. Yeah. It's so interesting. I'm so glad you pointed us to those first few sentences because she's admitting that she's white and she's also positioning herself as an outsider of whiteness, which I think is 
such an interesting position and one that I'm sure many people experienced. And it's just difficult, right? Like you can't take off your whiteness. It's it, right. right. Like it sets the stakes of all of that difficulty in just those first few sentences. Yeah. I mean, some critics have pointed out her heavy reliance in Wide Sargasso Sea on Afro-Caribbean tropes and Afro-Caribbean culture. And is that appropriation? Is that representation. I mean, I do not see her as being in an exemplary position that one can either defend or attack or, right. but um, it's, it is the complexity. It is the complexity right. of her that is so interesting. And that, I mean, I think that the conversations that we have about her race and writing are productive conversations. Absolutely. Another place where I see this dichotomy, and I think that she's doing something really brilliant and interesting, is with Antoinette, who is Bertha in Jane Eyre, that it isn't mental illness at the heart of what's going on, it's trauma. And then the trauma creates at least a moment of mental instability, and then there's a re-traumatizing of the quote-unquote treatment for the mental illness, right, which is just incarceration. Am I right in saying that Reese is arguing that, at least in the case of these women, it's actually patriarchy that makes them, quote unquote, go mad rather than any like inherent mental illness? I think it's patriarchy and and it is the violence of the history that patriarchy is orchestrated because her mother has her house burned down. She loses her disabled son in the fire and... Before that, she felt marooned. She uses the word marooned, which is a really loaded Caribbean term for her to use and forced into a marriage that she's clearly suspicious of. So, I mean, everything environmentally going into her mother's being locked away or hidden away speaks of grief and it speaks of trauma and it speaks of radical precarity so, yeah, I think Reese is explaining this whole concept of madness as not at all madness. Right. I mean, and then that's in the mother, but then also with Bertha, right? I think that we mm -hmm. see it's making an intergenerational, but also the same argument about Bertha, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, even, you know, when I've taught Jane Eyre, the students don't need to read White Sargasso's Sea to understand how utterly cruel yeah. Rochester's treatment of Bertha Mason is. And who wouldn't lose your mind being taken to a strange, cold place? And the cold is important to Reese. The cold is important because she always resented it and felt it in her bones most of her life. And so being locked away in a cold place would drive anybody out of their mind. And I, I don't think that she is implying in any way that her mother's trauma was inherited by Antoinette, but that each of these women were serially treated in ways that induced trauma in them by patriarchy. Yeah. I recently, I just read Jane Eyre with 20 women. Every single one asked me, they were like, do you think that she was crazy when she got locked up or that being locked up made her crazy. And I just think it's so interesting because I know 150 years ago, that was not the question that people were asking. And right. now 
201. Like, that is the question that they are asking. And I love that Jean Reese was like, let's really investigate that question. Right. And what other traumas and how these things are cyclical. So I'm wondering if you could describe her depiction of Rochester, because I know that there are a lot of very intentional choices that Reese makes that makes the novel like non-canonical, right? Like she moves it up a little bit in timing in order to like fit with historical moments, which I think is really interesting. And I love that Reese said, right, this novel doesn't necessarily have to be attached to Jane Eyre, But I'm not writing about any white Creole woman. I'm writing about Bertha, right? Like I'm writing about this one specific white Creole woman. And so she wanted it tied to Jane Eyre. And then one of my frustrations with people who have read White Sargasso Sea and Jane Eyre is that they impose this version of Rochester onto the Rochester Mm -hmm. of Jane Eyre. And I would argue that they're pretty different characters, but I would love to hear your characterization of this unnamed man who Jane Eyre readers would read as Rochester in White Sargasso Sea. That's so, yeah, no, that's so interesting because whereas she is fascinated by Bertha, she deliberately moves away from Bronte's Rochester. She even had a different name for him. She was, when she thought about naming him, she was going to call him Rayland or something. She wasn't even going to use the name Rochester and then she just went with nameless so what he is, is a husband. So he's the husband. Um, and to have him reduced to the role of husband without a name serves her point about him. But yeah, no, she she was not doing the kind of literary archaeology on his character that she was doing on Bertha's character, to be sure. Yeah. I mean, that is so interesting to me that she was like, I'm writing about Bertha, but not Rochester. I mean, he's a torturer in mm-hmm. White Sargasso Sea, or sadistic. He's sadistic. Yes, that's yes. it. He's sadistic. Yeah. I mean, by the end of part two, he's drawing the little doll's house and drawing the figure of a woman in an attic. And, you, you know, you can just see him plotting her imprisonment from the end of his his chapter. Why, if she was trying to make him just the husband, what do you think the importance is of giving him a whole section of the novel? Well, Reese had a hard time getting a handle on the novel for a while. And what really unlocked it for her was she wrote this poem called Obia Nights. And it was from Rochester's point of view or from the husband's point of view. And um, the way that she shows his point of view, you can see his projections onto the Caribbean. You can see what he brings there with him and how he is incapable of understanding her home and where she is from, much less Antoinette herself. And it's important to have those projections. I mean, since Reese was writing back to English literature, the Caribbean is all over English literature. People's estates are based on the Caribbean. Their wealth is certainly based on the Caribbean. I mean, any number of 19th century and 18th century works of British literature could have this kind of accompanying text writing back to it. So I think that she wanted to address that English point of view and she wanted to expose it at the same time that she was looking for Antoinette's identity and home. Yeah. Oh, I love that reading on why he gets a section. Um, How do you see Reese's 
portrayal of Obia. Is she presenting it in, like, the magical Negro, like, problematic white understanding of Black culture way? Or, yeah, how would you describe her use of Obia in the book? Well, that's definitely one of those moments we mentioned earlier where she is using Afro-Caribbean tropes, traditions, but she's pretty clear in Wide Sargasso Sea that the notion of magicking, she borrows the language of magicking, like he magicked her, she magicked him, which I think she uses really deliberately to parse it out from love and to say these two were never in love with each other. They magicked each other, but love was not even a possibility uh, between the two of them. There was a different dynamic at play. And then Christophine is very clear. This is not for white people. And this is going to end very, very badly if you basically try to take this power based in Afro-Caribbean tradition and use it for yourself. (laughs) And Christophine is right. I mean, one of the things that I've always struggled with and delighted in, you know, with Jane Eyre is the different forms of theology and when they're hyper-realistic and Jane is going to, like, die on the moors of starvation, but happens to end up on the doorstep of her cousins or, right, like, here's Rochester's voice on the wind. And I'm wondering if you see Reese as using Obia and other forms of magic and magical realism in conversation with Jane Eyre? Is she up to something totally different or any thoughts about that? Well, that is really interesting to, I guess, you know, to point out that for all the exoticism in the husband's gaze towards his Jamaican wife, for all that exoticism, he's from an equally exotic culture (laughs) in the sense that he is from magic. He's from, he, you know, with all of his, uh, is terminology around Jane Eyre has everything to do with sprites and witches and elves and the green people. Yes, the green yeah. people. Yeah. I I like that idea that she's creating the sort of parody of exoticism between the two texts, even though, you know, he has this exoticizing view. She's finding a way of saying, yeah, well, <laughs> you should know. It takes one to know one. <laughs> right. And his obsession, like his just disgust with her, not because of her magic or any of her practices, but just because it's not his, right? Like it's not the pure English version of it. Yeah. I mean, he there's so much that he doesn't understand. And that's the exoticizing gaze is born of that, right? It's born of the notion that there's so much opacity and mystery out there that it's completely incomprehensible. And therefore, you know, his approach to seeing new spaces on the island and new landscapes and and people is is just to see strangeness. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a Jane Eyre question just because it's like my question that's left about Jane Eyre. To what extent should we give Bronte the benefit of the doubt that at least she was trying to acknowledge that the wealth was built in the Caribbean and with Bertha versus just saying, I'm going to bring in this Creole character in order to marginalize her, right? Like Austin in several of her novels just didn't even try to deal with it, right? And then in Mansfield Park did. But like part of me wants to give her credit. I'm like, she's trying to acknowledge this whole part of British empire and yet she's just exploiting it for a literary device. I'm just wondering if you could sort of talk about that a little bit. 
I think that's hugely important that she she says this is where the money is coming from. And she doesn't go into the fact that it's plantation money and sugar money, but it clearly is. Certainly contemporary readers would have known that. And I think Reese picks up on that very important economic piece in the, again, on the very first page of White Sargasso Sea, where Reese points out that one of the neighbors, one of the white landowners, um, swims out to sea and drowns himself because he's waiting for the British government to pay him his perverse reparation money, whereby the British government paid all uh, slave owners after emancipation reparatory money. It's, you know, the most perverse economic twist. But those monies, you know, were not paid off by the British taxpayers until 2015, as I understand it. So that economic reality is a real through line from Bronte's acknowledgement of it in 1847 through Wide Sargasso Sea up into contemporary 21st century reality. I think those economic pointers are essential in Jane Eyre as well as White Sargasso Sea. Is there anything else that you think that our listeners should know about Jean Reese or White Sargasso Sea? I would give a shout out to Reese's earlier works. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, Good Morning Midnight is my favorite novel that she ever wrote. I mean, I I could write about Good Morning Midnight endlessly. And when I say that it's one of my favorite books and someone asks me, well, what is it about? And I'm like, well, it's about a woman wandering around Paris with almost no money for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just razor sharp in its wit and its criticism of how this woman is being crushed economically and personally and psychologically by interwar Europe. She just, she gets this all down in the sharpest, most singular voice. So for all the White Sargasso Sea is a really important novel. Um, The earlier Reese is just so singular of voice and vision and worthy of at least as much attention That kind of sounds like the center of Jane Eyre when she wanders around for three days. Right. (laughs) There you go. It's all all Jane Eyre. I mean, Good Morning Midnight's a rejoinder, yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, Erica, thank you so much for your scholarship and for taking the time to talk to us about White Sargasso Sea. Thank you for being an avid reader and for all of your work on, on Jane Eyre and White Sargasso Sea, too. Even if you haven't read Jane Eyre, it has formed you. And that is also true of Wide Sargasso Sea. As you heard me say, there isn't a single person I know who reads Jane Eyre nowadays and doesn't immediately ask, did Bertha go crazy and then get locked in the attic? Or did she go crazy because she got locked in the attic? Reese started to try to answer that question nearly a hundred years ago. She fixated on Bertha the mad Creole upstairs, and wanted to excavate her. Reese, while working on Wide Sargasso Sea, once wrote, quote, It might be possible to unhitch the whole thing from Charlotte Bronte's novel, but I don't want to do that. It is this particular mad Creole I want to write about, 
not any of the other mad creoles. It is nearly impossible to mark the impact of this slim volume in the academy and in the imaginations of readers. I have had more than one conversation with a person who tells me one of the reasons that they don't like Rochester is for something that he did in Wide Sargasso Sea. I fight back with them. That's not actually in the novel and push up my glasses. But I'm beginning to wonder if it's actually a good thing that these lines are blurred. I don't love everything about the execution of Reese's experiment, but I am sure that it is the right experiment. It is a grand, sweeping gesture of putting the marginalized character right in the middle. Reese took the plot impediment and made her the star. Reese made it so it wouldn't just be Rochester who couldn't forget where Bertha came from and what money that Thornfield House was built on. She made it so that we can't forget either. This episode of Hot and Bothered was executive produced and edited by Ariana Nettleman. We are a Not Sorry production and are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank, especially this week, Dr. Erica Johnson, Laura Glass, Gabby Iori, Lauren Sandler, Nikki Zoltan, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you in two weeks with another adaptation. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.